0: Amen. Amen. In 1891, James Naismith invented the game of basketball. He was a professor at Kansas University. And he wanted to create an activity that would preoccupy his athletes in the wintertime, between the football and the baseball seasons. Well, when Naismith invented basketball, he compiled a list of just 13 rules. Just 13 Today, the official basketball rulebook contains 50 articles, each with multiple subpoints. The international uh, rulebook for basketball is 81 pages long. The expansion of the rules of basketball is a testimony to the human tendency to complicate whatever we touch. We are experts at turning the simple into complex, We add rules and restrictions and explanations. And this is especially true with religion. Take, for example, the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The law that God gave to Moses provided broad, general instructions to observe one day in seven as a day of rest and worship. God made work off-limits on the Sabbath. Yet the Jews felt compelled to define what constituted work. You couldn't wear your dentures on the Sabbath day, or strap on your wooden leg, or lift a child. Or if you did, you would be carrying a load, and that constituted work. Or you could spit on the Sabbath day, but if you scuffed your spit with the sole of your shoe, you'd be watering and cultivating the soil. That would be work. In reality, one man's work is another man's leisure. We all know that. Some folks view gardening or yard work as therapeutic. It's a healthy diversion, a way to unwind. I personally would rather have a root canal than pull weeds out of my yard. And yet, this is why God gave a general Sabbath command. Do no work and then left the details of compliance up to each person's conscience. Tragically though, the Jews couldn't leave it at that. They went to great effort to define what constituted work. Page after page after page in the Mishnah and in the Talmud, Jewish commentaries on the law were devoted to the subject of Sabbath observance. You know, it's been said of the American legal system We have 35 million laws trying to enforce Ten Commandments. That also describes Judaism. Yet Jesus came to simplify. The Jews had smothered the intent of God's law under a blanket of their own interpretations. Jesus wanted to restore the spirit of the law, the intent of the law. And that's what he does in the first half here in chapter 6. Verse 1 begins, Now, it happened on the second Sabbath after the first that he went through the grain fields and his disciples plucked the heads of grain and ate them, rubbing them in their hands. They were self-milling. And some of the Pharisees said to them, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Now, according to the Jewish legalists, the Pharisees, there were four things you couldn't do with the grain on the Sabbath day. You couldn't harvest it, thresh it, winnow it, or separate it, or cook it. No plucking, no shucking, no separating, and no eating. Thus, when the disciples rubbed the grain between their hands, blew off the chaff, and ate the dry cereal, they were guilty of all four forbidden practices. You know, we've been told our whole lives, we better eat our Wheaties. Can you believe the Jews considered doing so a sin? You know, it's interesting, the traditions of the Pharisees also prohibited a Jew from traveling more than 3,000 feet from his own home on the Sabbath day. Makes you wonder how these cats were out in the field scrutinizing the breakfast habits of Jesus and his disciples. It was so hypocritical to catch Jesus breaking the rules, they had to violate their own rules to do so. Well, verse 3 tells us, But Jesus answering them said, Have you not even read this, what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he went into the house of God, took and ate the showbread, and also gave some to those with him, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. Of course, we all know David. David was the Jewish champion. All Jews respected David's heart for God. Yet when David fled from Saul, he first stopped by the tabernacle on his way out of Dodge. He and his men were tired and they were hungry. The priests wanted to strengthen David's troops, but the only food on hand was the sacred showbread. And according to God's law, only only the priests could eat this bread. Yet David didn't hesitate to make an exception. Like Jesus' disciples on the Sabbath day, David also ate his Wheaties After all, it was a breakfast of champions. Understand, both David and Jesus broke a ceremonial law to keep a higher moral law. You know, normally 80 miles per hour violates the traffic laws. Unless you're rushing a person in critical condition to the hospital. You see, there are times when a higher law supersedes a lower law. Jesus was showcasing this basic principle that the Jews had failed to recognize that human need always takes precedent over religious ritual. In God's eyes, compassion toward people is far more important than just keeping traditions. At times, the letter of the law should be violated in order to keep the spirit of the law. Thus, Jesus and his disciples ate grain on the Sabbath day. And Jesus adds the kicker. He says, for the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is the lawgiver. He was the divine presence on Mount Sinai. He was the voice from the burning bush. Jesus is the Lord of the law, and if he gave it, then he can suspend it or change it at his prerogative. In other words, the Son of God isn't bound by his own law. And oh, how this infuriated the Pharisees. Verse 6. Now it happened on another Sabbath also that he entered the synagogue and taught. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. So the scribes and Pharisees watched him closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath, that they might find an accusation against him. Another Jewish prohibition on the Sabbath was healing. Believe it or not, you could stop a person from dying, but if you improve their condition, that was considered work and illegal on the Sabbath. Well, by this time, everyone knew that Jesus loved people. And if there was a needy man in the house, chances were that Jesus would heal him. The Pharisees may have planted this fellow with the arthritic hand in the room to trap Jesus. Verse eight, but Jesus knew their thoughts. Knows yours too, by the way. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, Arise and stand here. And he arose and stood. Jesus is about to teach a lesson. Then Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy? Jesus springs his own trap Can a good deed be unlawful? I mean, what's more important, maintaining a tradition or saving a life? And when he had looked around at them all, the tension's mounting. And I love Mark here. Mark adds at this point that when he looked, he looked with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts. Jesus got mad. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored as whole as the other. I used to have an aunt and when she was alive she had a withered hand. I'd go down and see her and my aunt Anne she had a, a hand that was so arthritic that it had just curled up in a ball. She used it like a club and she'd lay it in the lap of her wheelchair. She couldn't stretch her fingers and I've often imagined Jesus saying to her, stretch out your hand, and instantly her fingers being released and loosed. This man had that same situation, and yet Jesus gives him an impossible command. Stretch out your hand. We need to realize that all faith is the willingness to act on an impossible command. Let me say that again. All faith is the willingness to act on an impossible command. We're all born in sin, born with a withered part. There's nothing we can do about our dead spirit. Yet Romans 6 verse 11 tells us to reckon ourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God. The word reckon means to consider it so. Thus the moment you believe, the moment you act on God's word is true. That truth becomes active in your life. This is what happened here. The instant this man's faith was exercised, God enabled him to stretch out his hand. And this is how faith in God works in our lives. He calls me and you to be or to do what we're not. Yet if we act as if it's true, if we provide God the willingness, if we step out in faith, then he works a miracle and he makes us able. Jesus told this crippled man, stretch out your hand. And amazingly, he did. Do we have faith? And the Jews rejoiced and they praised God over the, whoops. No, they didn't. No, they didn't. Notice, they were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. The Pharisees could tell everyone what to do on the Sabbath except God. He didn't keep their commands. You know, we say the Pharisees rejected Jesus because he claimed to be God, and that's true. But the opposite is also true. They weren't ready for the true God, so they rejected Jesus. See, they worshiped a God you could control, that you could push into a box, who bowed to their terms and played by their rules. That was never going to be Jesus, the true God. The son of God is wild and woolly. He blows up our traditions. He does what he pleases and he expects us to follow him. Here's the question. Are you ready for the true God? Verse 12. Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. Now at the time, Jesus was on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee near the town of Capernaum. South of Capernaum, there is a majestic mountain that towers over the lake. Its steep face rises out of the water. It's known as Mount Arbel. And for me, a trip to Israel isn't complete without a climb to the top of the Arbel. The view from there is panoramic. I mean, it's breathtaking. This is a remote and quiet place. It's a perfect spot for prayer and meditation. And it may have been the very spot that Jesus spent this night in prayer. Well, when it was day, he called his disciples to himself. And from them, he chose 12 whom he also named apostles. Disciple means learner or follower. Apostle means one who is sent out, such as an ambassador. The terms combined form a progression. Christians begin as learners. We all begin as learners. But then learners become followers, and Jesus has marching orders for us all. The time comes to act on what we've learned. The apostles were to be the men who would take the gospel to the world and establish the church. Choosing them was extremely important. And this is why it's no surprise that Jesus spent the night before in prayer. All night he prayed and sought God's wisdom. And guess what? If it was important for Jesus to pray before making strategic decisions, how much more important should it be for us to pray? You know, taking a few minutes to pray may save you hours later from straightening out a bad decision. Well, in the next few verses, Jesus or Luke lists the men that Jesus chose. He says Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and then another set of brothers, James and John, then Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus. And Simon called the zealot. You know, zealots like Simon were Jewish freedom fighters. They were like militia people, a paramilitary unit bent on using violence to drive the Romans out of Judea. Tax collectors like Matthew were the opposite. They were considered to be Jewish sellouts who collaborated with Rome. Imagine having Matthew and Simon on the same team. Not to mention an impulsive Peter and a cautious Thomas. I mean, this was a diverse band of personalities and priorities. Obviously, Jesus wanted to show the world that allegiance to him can transcend all our differences. And then he finishes the list in verse 16. Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. And here's a provocative point. If Jesus prayed all night, then Judas Iscariot was the answer to his prayer. You'd think God would want to weed out the troublemakers and the betrayers up front. But God's ways are not our ways. Sometimes God has a purpose for putting difficult people in our lives. He can use them to help shape us. Well, Jesus came down with him and he stood on a level place. Arbel's eastern slope is a sheer drop into the water, but west of the summit is a plateau. It's level ground that stretches out for a long ways. Perhaps it was there on the level ground that Jesus met with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases, as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits. And they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him. For power went out from him and healed them all. Notice that. All were healed. No one went home that day untouched by the love and power of Jesus Christ. And then verse 20. Then he lifted up his eyes toward his disciples and said, And the rest of Luke chapter 6 is similar to Matthew chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And there are scholars who are quick to point out their discrepancies. They assume that Luke chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 5 are the same sermon, but I don't think so. The address in Matthew was delivered on a mountainside. Here the people assembled in a level place. There's no discrepancy here. I believe it was a different sermon at a different time to a different group of people in a different place. There's some repetitive content and similar structure, but it was two sermons. Call Matthew chapter five through seven, the Sermon on the Mount, and refer to Luke chapter six as the Sermon on the Plain. Jesus begins this sermon, verse 20. Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. You know, a mistake we often make is to assume that wealth and health and happiness are indicators of God's blessing. Whereas poverty and sickness and sorrow are signs of God's curse. You remember, this was the source of Job's confusion. You recall the story of Job. He was innocent of any wrongdoing and yet calamity struck his life. Great calamity. Job's troubles threw a wrench in the gears of this prevailing theology of his time. That good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. Jesus rebuffed this kind of theology. It was kindergarten theology. He taught that a person's physical status had nothing to do with his spiritual stature. A rich man is not necessarily blessed. And a poor man is not necessarily cursed. In fact, Jesus says, blessed or happy are those who hunger now and those who weep now. Since God will see to it one day that they'll laugh and they'll be full. According to Jesus, the kingdom of God is not about the here and now. The tables will be turned in eternity. The halves on earth will be heaven's have-nots. And today's have-nots will be heaven's haves. He says, blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the son of man's sake. You know, Jesus promised us that in this world, you will have tribulation. God's kingdom and the world system are locked in mortal combat. Live for Jesus and you'll inevitably draw fire from people who embrace the the values of this world. Reminds me of the guy in heaven. He was asked by the angel if he'd done a kind deed while he was on earth. He said, well, sure. He says, once there was this hell's angel, he jumped off his motorcycle and he started picking on this little old lady. I grabbed the guy, kicked him in the shins and told the lady to run for help. The angel marveled. Wow, that's a brave act. When did it occur? The guy said, oh, about 30 seconds ago. <laughs> That's funnier, the more you think about it. <laughs> there may come a time when Christians become subject to physical violence. But here Jesus is talking about social persecution, like hatred and slander and exclusion. When you're mistreated, or slighted, or canceled. When it happens, Jesus says, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. When you're treated unfairly for Jesus' sake by an employer, or by a coworker, or by a friend on Twitter, consider yourself blessed. It and appear, it appears to be happening a lot more often rather than less, doesn't it? But this is the proof that your life is pleasing to God. Not that you're blessed financially or that you have perfect health. That, those don't mean anything. What means something is that your life is counting for God in the world because of your life is rejecting it. He says, but woe to you who are rich for you have received your consolation. This is the rich man who's pursued the world's riches and didn't have time to lay up treasure in heaven. This man has been extremely short-sighted, Jesus says. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. You see, Jesus is saying, waste your life partying now and you'll cry forever. Live for a full stomach now or for a fat bank account and you'll lack forever. Life is more than fun and games. Serious issues are at stake. Eternal issues are what heaven's about and what our lives should be about now. He says, woe to you when men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. In other words, try to be everybody's friend and you won't be God's friend. You know, we all are gonna offend somebody. Are you worried about offending men or God? God. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. Boy, it's hard enough to love those who love us. Here we're told to love our enemies. It's impossible to love your enemy. Like the man with the withered hand, this is an impossible command love your enemies. This kind of love I don't have in me. But you see, if I give God the willingness, then he'll perform the miracle and make me able. It was C.S. Lewis who once said, don't waste time bothering about whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. But if you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. When we provide the willingness, God works the miracle in us. Always remember, God loved his enemies. And God didn't ask us to do what he was not willing to do himself. And who are God's enemies? Romans 5, verse 10 tells us, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Hey, when God loves us, he's loving his enemies, and we should do likewise. And notice how Jesus tells us to love our enemies. He says, pray for them, pray for your enemies. You can't pray for someone without looking at them through the eyes of Jesus. And once we see them as he sees them, love will begin to grow. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow once said, If we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each man's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all of our hostilities. Pray for your enemies. And then Jesus says, verse 29, to him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. You know, a slap on the cheek was not a physical assault. It was an insult. It was the back of the hand. It was an insult. It was a way of, of, of insulting someone's pride and dignity. Understand, Jesus isn't teaching here nonviolence or pacifism. You can't infer from this passage that war is always wrong or that the death penalty doesn't have a place in society. There are occasions when the loving act is to forcibly stop a person from inflicting harm on myself or on society at large. I'll just tell you, if a guy breaks into my house to harm me and my family, there's nothing wrong with me brandishing my shotgun, pulling the trigger, and defending myself. If I'm insulted, I should absorb it. I should slough it off, I should turn the other cheek. If I'm assaulted, that's a different matter. To him who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back again. Again, Jesus isn't telling us to be a doormat, to become a victim to let other people abuse us. He's talking about our priorities and our rights. Boy, we talk a lot about rights today. Everybody's standing up for their rights. My priority should be to love people, not demand my rights. And Jesus is challenging us here. Am I willing to give up my rights in order to show another person love? That's what we as Christians should do. My right to dignity Oh, you can slap me, but your insult won't stop me from loving you. My right to possessions. Hey, take my coat, for your soul means more to me than my shirt. See, Jesus is teaching us to make a radical commitment in these verses. Let's fight back, but let's repay hatred with love. Fight back, but overcome evil with good is what we're told. Abraham Lincoln once said, the best way to destroy your enemy is by making him your friend. This should be the Christian's goal in the world. We can passionately debate issues, but Christians should never forget our goal is to win souls, not just arguments. Ultimately, the world will know that we're of God by how we treat people. Do we love other people? We need to remember that we can hold all the right political positions, we can check off all the evangelical and conservative boxes, but we betray the cause we say we support if we are ugly toward our adversaries. Verse 31 fits right in. It's called the golden rule, and it strikes again at the heart of this matter. Jesus said, and just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. And Jesus was not the first person to utter this ideal for human relationships. In fact, the Jewish Talmud stated, What is hateful to you, do not to your fellow man. The Buddha put it this way, Hurt not others in ways that you yourself would find hurtful. Confucius say, What you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. And the Greek philosopher Socrates put it this way. What stirs your anger when done to you, that do not to others. Yet here's the difference. Everyone else phrased it in the negative, whereas Jesus put it in the positive. As far as Jesus is concerned, it's not enough to avoid doing harm. He wants us to look for ways to do good. True morality goes on the offensive. It doesn't just dodge sin but it shows love. Verse 32. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? That's an easy thing to do. For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the unthankful and the evil. How do people know that you're of God? It's if you're kind. If you're loving toward people, not just that you believe the, all the political causes and you can line up all down the list. It's that if you love people, what a verse this is. God is still kind to ingrates and rebels. Can you believe it? And when we show the same kindness, we're acting like a son or a daughter of the Most High. J. Oswald Sanders once wrote, the master expects from his disciples such conduct as can be explained only in terms of the supernatural. And this is certainly true here. Anyone can love a person who loves them. But the kind of love Jesus describes, again, is impossible. It takes a miracle to love the unlovable. It's been said, to injure an enemy puts you below him. To take revenge on an enemy makes you even. It's only when you forgive your enemy that you rise above him. Jesus calls on his followers here to aspire to a higher standard. Again, we provide the willingness and he makes us able. And then verse 36, therefore be merciful just as your father also is merciful. I like what Martin Luther King Jr. said, I have decided to stick to love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. And indeed it is. Hatred, how quickly hatred turns to bitterness. You know, you could rationalize the first half of this verse, be merciful, and probably still justify harshness towards certain people, if it were not for the phrase, as your Father also is merciful. God is a Father of all mercy. And it's the mercy we know that should be the mercy we show. And then Jesus says in verse 37, Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. And the word Jesus uses, judge, means to judge with the intent to condemn. See, a doctor judges, but he judges to heal. A friend judges, but he judges to help. Apparent judges, but they judge to protect us. Never judge to condemn, that's the prohibition here. I love the old adage, you have a right to censure only if you have a heart to help. You know, as Christians, there are times when we're required to make biblical judgments. For me to call homosexuality sinful, or Mormonism heretical, or Allah, a false god, It's not my judgment. I'm just echoing what the Bible has already determined. What Jesus prohibits here are arbitrary judgments, not grounded in Scripture. What we might call generalizations or stereotypes or superficial conclusions or judgments based on appearance or partial information. These are unfair judgments in which we shouldn't participate. And what's the reason we shouldn't? lest we want others to make unfair assumptions about us. Verse 38 tells us, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Give a little, you'll get a little. Give a lot, you'll get a lot. The phrase, put into your bosom, this is an interesting phrase. It makes sense only after you've seen a Hebrew tunic. It had a fold at the waist that served as a pocket. In essence, Jesus is saying here, give to God and he'll fill your pockets. You can't outgive God. And he spoke a parable to them Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the ditch? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. In other words, be careful who you follow. Don't be like the blind who lead the blind or follow the blind. You know, you can follow the wrong person straight to hell. Always advise people, never follow anybody until you know who they're following. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not perceive the plank in your own eye? And it seems to me that Jesus here is intending to be comical. He paints such a funny picture. A hypocrite makes a big deal out of the tiny little toothpick protruding from your eye while ignoring the huge two-by-four sticking out of your own eye. You know, a common eye infection that people get is pink eye. Anybody get pink eye? Sometimes. Here, Jesus diagnoses a disease he calls plank eye. Worse than pink eye. Do you have plank eye? Do you see the other guy's faults with twenty twenty vision while you're blind to your own? That's plank eye. Once there was a lady, she was critical of her neighbor. She looked out her window at their neighbor's laundry on the clothesline. And every time she saw it, she sneered. She said, my neighbor is such a sloppy housekeeper. Look at the streaks in her wash. One day her friend responded, pardon me, but those strings aren't in her wash. They're on your windows. A hypocrite focuses on the other guy's minor problems while ignoring his own major issues. Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me remove the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the plank that is in your own eye? Hypocrite. First, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck that's in your brother's eye. You know, speck removal is delicate, a delicate procedure. You know how difficult it is? Would you let me just walk up and start poking around your eye? No way. Our our, our eye is very sensitive. That's why we have a lid on our eye. It shuts automatically to protect itself. It's a delicate procedure. Why would I allow anyone to touch my eye if there was a two-by-four sticking out of their own eye? Clear out your own plank first, and then maybe we can see well enough to remove each other's speck. For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. Jesus is here condemning hypocritical judgments, but not all judging is bad. At times we need to size up a person. But when it's necessary, don't look at the outward appearance, Jesus says. You never judge a tree by its leaves. You look deeper to its fruit. And the same is true with a person. He says, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good fruit, forth good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil, for out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. In winter, a tree bear will sometimes grow bare. It just looks like it's dead. But you don't write it off until the springtime. If it doesn't come back, you got to give it a chance for the sap to rise, for what's inside of it to rise back to the surface. And likewise, you don't judge a person until you get to know their heart, what's inside them. You take time to listen. What's on the inside will eventually rise to the surface as well. For out of the heart, the mouth speaks. To judge a person, you need to consider their heart. This is what Jesus does in verse 46. He says, but why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? Look past what a person says to what they do that's where we need to make our judgments. See, people can put on a righteous show. They can hide behind a religious facade. They can say all the right things. People can talk the talk, but not walk the walk. A person can profess a loyalty they don't actually possess. And Jesus continues, whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like, He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it for it was founded on the rock. Notice the man with a solid foundation doesn't just hear Jesus' sayings, but he does them. He applies them. He hears and does. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation against which the stream beat vehemently and immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. You know, foundations aren't seen from the street level. For a time, no one knew the difference in these two houses until the floods came and assaulted them. And so it is in our lives. Foundations aren't detectable until the storms come. It's the hard times that expose a person's foundation. It's the difficulties in life that reveal our true allegiances and our character. I like the old adage, Christians are like tea bags. You don't know what's inside until you put them in hot water. And so the question we end with this morning is this. Is your life built on the rock or on shallow dirt? Are you trusting in God's timeless truths? Or do you live according to the world's fickle opinions and self-serving wisdom? See, we may not know until the storms come, but you know, you know right now how you're living. I pray that you'll be honest, for God knows your heart. I pray you'll be honest and begin to build a solid foundation by hearing and doing the word of God. Father, we thank you.